Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Lots of uh, news today to talk about, particularly what's going on in Georgia. But first, um, uh, if you have a chance, uh, join our local community um, that you get two minutes every day of something that's on my mind, usually something fairly controversial. Uh, it's at Dershow, D-E-R-S-H-O-W dot locals dot com. So, so please join. I think you'll, you'll enjoy the two minutes. So Speaking of two minutes, I want to talk about uh, the four women of the grand jury in, in Georgia who got her 15 minutes of fame by being interviewed on television, being interviewed by the New York Times. I hope you've seen her interview. And if you haven't, just go on Google and, and do Emily Coors um, uh, and, and, and listen to her interview and ask yourself, is this what justice has come to in America? Unbelievable. This interview speaks volumes. I, I don't want to make fun of somebody, and I certainly don't want to make fun of somebody based on age or gender, but the idea of, well, she hopes there's an indictment because they've spent so much time on this. It would be a waste if, if nothing came of it. Uh, that's not the job of grand jurors. Um, it would be much better to spend hours and hours and weeks and months and come to the conclusion, no, nothing was wrong. After all, the function of a grand jury is to protect defendants. Uh, the Constitution of the United States and the Fifth Amendment requires that uh, in all federal cases, uh, before a person can be put on trial, a grand jury has to decide that an indictment is, is, is warranted. It was designed to serve as a protection. And, and look what it's turned into in, in Georgia. It's just just such a core violation of principles of, of justice. They hear evidence be behind closed doors, to be sure, um, but they hear it uh, without cross-examination, without a right of confrontation, without counsel for any of the suspects or potential defendants being there. They hear a one-sided narrative presented by the prosecution in secret. And okay, in secret, that, that's one thing, but you know, in the federal grand jury, secrecy remains secret. And if anybody in the grand jury, the foreman or anybody else discloses what went on in the grand jury, it's a it's a felony, a serious one, and people go to jail for it. But not in Georgia. In Georgia, the forewoman is allowed to go on CBS and CNN and uh, allowed to express her opinions and, and, and talk about how much she liked uh, this senator and this witness and how she didn't like this witness and uh, let's play some guessing games as to who will be indicted and who won't be indicted. It just made the Georgia system of justice seem so unbelievably amateurish. Uh, you know, I don't want to make comparisons, but there's a great play now opening on Broadway called Parade. It was picketed today by Nazis. And it tells the story of Leo Frank. We've talked about him on the show, the Jewish um, entrepreneur in Atlanta, who had come down from Brooklyn where he was born and was falsely accused of raping and murdering a 13 year old. And the evidence is now absolutely conclusive that uh, he was uh, totally innocent and framed and yet he was lynched. Um, uh, that was Georgia justice, Marietta County style, circa second decade of the 20th century. Uh, this is different, obviously um, here. We're not seeing any, literal lynchings, but we're seeing this kind of get Trump, get Trump. I think I mentioned to you, I have this new book. It'll be out in a, in a few weeks or so. You can get
get it on Amazon now, uh, get Trump, uh, the threat to civil liberties, due process, and our constitutional rule of law. And it documents exactly how uh, people on the hard left and people in the woke and progressive elements of the Democratic Party are violating the Constitution, violating the law, stretching the law, distorting the law, just in order to prevent Trump from running for uh, re-election. Um, and this is part and parcel uh, of it. Uh, clearly, when this um, young woman um, went on television, she hopes that uh, the prosecutor will indict uh, Donald Trump, and maybe he will, but he surely shouldn't do it on the basis of her statements, her opinions, her conclusions, or indeed of this grand jury at all, um, because obviously it was so so one-sided. His job is to evaluate all the evidence, to consider what evidence will be presented on the other side. Based on the phone call alone, there couldn't possibly be a, a conviction that would be upheld on appeal. No way. Remember that the relevant words in the phone call between Trump and the Secretary of State in Georgia is find me 11,780 uh, votes. Fine, 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 fine. Not invent, not make up out of whole cloth. Fine. Look up in the dictionary what fine means. Fine means discovering something that's been lost. Uh, it's there. Uh, you don't find things that aren't there. Uh, you don't find ghosts. You don't find uh, made-up stories. Uh, you invent them. You, 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 you create them out of whole cloth. He didn't say create. He didn't say invent. He said find, which means discover. Um, and, and what he was basically saying, at least that's the most logical interpretation of what he was basically saying, is there may very well be uncounted votes. And if there are uncounted votes and they favor me, uh, please go and find them and count them. No, he didn't say, also see if there are any uncounted votes against me, but he's an advocate. That's not a crime. That may have been the right thing to do, to say, look at all the votes. That's what we tried to do in Bush versus Gore when I was one of the lawyers looking for, in that case, only 600 votes that would have made um, it would have made Al Gore the president of the United States. In, in Florida, the Supreme Court stopped us from looking for those votes, which I think we could have found. Um, but, you know, you don't indict somebody based on ambiguities. There's a concept in criminal law. It's a concept grows out of the Latin term, lenity, L-E-N-I-T-Y. just means leniency. But what it means is if there are ambiguous facts or ambiguous law, uh, you always rule in favor of the defendant. And that's part and parcel of better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. And part and parcel of the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. In criminal cases, even if the defendant is probably guilty, he should walk. Probably is not enough. It has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And and, and you can't say that about that, that telephone call. Look, you as a voter, me as a voter, we can interpret in any way we want. We can say, well, as far as I'm concerned, the president may very well have meant uh, discover or he may have meant invent. I'm not going to vote for him. That's fine. You're entitled to your own opinion about historical facts, but jurors and judges are not. They're not allowed to speculate about uh, what the meaning of the word um, uh, find is, and certainly they're not allowed to speculate as to what Donald Trump intended by using that word and how it was interpreted 
by the Secretary of, of State. Uh, look it up in the dictionary. Uh, the plain meaning of find is an innocent meaning in this case. Now, I just read a half an hour ago that uh, the same well, Emily Kors did say, um, apparently, or somebody said um, from the grand jury, that they heard more than one phone call between uh, Donald Trump and the Secretary of State. It's conceivable. There could be other phone calls uh, in which he says things that are more incriminating. I haven't heard that. I haven't seen it. I haven't uh, had any evidence of it. And so we just can't assume, uh, you know, what the first three letters of assume are uh, and, and don't become one of those. Um, and and, and uh, law is not based on assumptions. It's not based on speculation. It's not based on, um, on, on what might be or what's possible. It's not even based on what's probable. It's based on what's as close to certain as the law permits anything to be, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's just no case uh, of proof beyond a reasonable doubt based on, and I'm talking only about based on that phone call. Uh, there may be other evidence, and I never want to pr presuppose or, or jump to conclusions or uh, rush to judgment. Uh, there may be evidence that's incriminating against anybody. Remember, uh, President uh, Trump is not the only potential target, um, potential um, subject of the grand jury uh, proceeding. Um, uh, obviously, they had, I don't know, 70 witnesses and lots and lots of people were talked about. And um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But there's something very, very wrong with the Georgia system. Um, this idea of a grand jury four-person giving a press conference, it, it reminds me of James Comey, except it's, it's worse. James Comey at least was, you know, the head of the FBI, and he took it upon himself to be essentially the attorney general of the United States. The attorney general had been recused in the Clinton case because she had met with Bill Clinton on the tarmac of an airport denied that they had ever discussed Hillary Clinton's case, but the appearance of justice required her to recuse herself. And so for some bizarre reason, the head of the FBI was not even in, 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 in the line of replacing the attorney general. They'd be the deputy attorney general, the assistant attorney general, the FBI's, uh, you know, just an investigative branch of the Justice Department. He got in front of television and made a fool of himself, a fool of democracy, and may have... Uh, influence the outcome of the election by opening up his big mouth. You know, a friend of mine has a, a, a big fish hanging up on his office uh, wall saying, if I had only kept my mouth shut, I'd still be swimming. Uh, and if Comey had only kept his mouth shut, he'd still probably be held in high regard uh, for his very good career that preceded his uh, incredible faux pas uh, on the eve of the 2016 election. I have no idea whether Emily Corr would still be swimming or not, um, but uh, no business, no business uh, being interviewed by uh, television networks and, and having her 15 minutes of fame. And, and I have to tell you, the New York Times had no business reporting it without context. Uh, they reported it just as a you know, great, great uh, news uh, break. Um, no, uh, they should have reported it in context, should have told their readers uh, what was entailed and, and what grand juries are really all about, and how to evaluate her statements and uh, 
should have given more of a, a way or a basis. And I absolutely guarantee you that if this had been a, a grand juror talking about Hunter Biden or um, Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, the Times would have clearly given it more context. But, uh, you know, the Times is extremely uh, biased. And I'm not talking about the editorial pages. I'm talking about the front page. I'm talking about the news reporting. Extremely biased. It's not your grandfather's New York Times. Well, your grandfather's New York Times wasn't so great. It essentially buried the story of the Holocaust. It glorified Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, the New York Times is a newspaper with a way, way, way exaggerated a reputation. It does some very good things, uh, but it does some very, very, very bad things, and it fails to do some other things. It is not the newspaper of record. Uh, it's the Gray Lady, and um, you know the Gray Lady uh, is, is occasionally uh, boring and gray, as, as its title says. But it certainly isn't all the news that's fit to print. It's all the news that fits the narrative of the New York Times, and they print it, and they turn it, and they twist it in ways that serve their narrative. And, uh, you know, the New York Times, what it says and what it doesn't say are equally important than what it doesn't say and what it doesn't report on and the context it doesn't provide is uh, really, really quite, quite important. So, you know, we're seeing a continuation of this, of this get Trump process. And, you know, again, this, this book, everybody's going to hate this book. I want to give you a warning. Everybody is going to hate this book. Because um, if you're um, a pro-Trump, you're going to hate it because I, um, I say right there, I'm not voting for Trump. I didn't vote for him twice. Um, uh, I think he did some bad things. I think what happened on January 6th was terrible. I don't think the election was stolen. I think it was fair and square. So if you're pro-Trump, you're not going to like it. If you're anti-Trump, you're certainly not going to like it because um, obviously... Um, um, I go after the anti-Trump people with a vengeance for their denial of civil liberties. But, uh, you know, as I wrote in a previous book, uh, the price of principle is worth the cost. And um, because I think of myself as a principled writer, I don't take sides. And I'm not looking to be liked by um, the uh, pro-Trump audience or liked by the anti-Trump audience. I would never succeed at that because uh, that's just not who I am. But, um, you know, if they both equally hate me, I must be doing something right. And so I'm going to continue to write in this vein. I'm going to continue to be one of the very few people um, in the public uh, life who is completely and totally nonpartisan, completely and totally uh, neutral, uh, who passes the shoe on the other test um, and uh, who calls it uh, the way I see it. And it doesn't matter to me one whit whether it helps the Democrats or hurts the Democrats, whether it helps the Republicans or helps the Republicans. I am not loyal to any political party. I am loyal to the United States of America. I'm loyal to truth. I'm loyal to principle. And I hope those of you who watch my show, you can like me, dislike me, whatever. But if there's one message I want to send to you is to be loyal to principle, to look at things from a neutral, principled, nonpartisan a perspective, uh, not weaponizing the criminal justice system the way it's being done in Georgia today and all over the country and in many other parts of the world as well today. Um, was it a South American dictator who once said, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law. You know, if you apply the law, if you, if you do what the get Trump people are doing, if you say, look, we have a target, his name is Donald Trump, 
We don't know whether he's committed any crimes or not, but he's the target. Now go out and find crimes. Talk about find. Here, we can use the word find in a very different way. Uh, they do two things, the, the get Trump people. They find existing crimes. That is, they search through the statute books. And we know this because people have admitted this. They said they're going to search through all the statute books and we're going to find something. So that's find in that sense of the word. And then you have Professor Lawrence Stribe, my former colleague, who basically uses that concept as create manufacture. He's the one who said that he would try to persuade Merrick Garland, his former student, to indict Donald Trump for the attempted murder, for the attempted murder of Vice President Pence. Now, talk about creating manufacturing crimes out of whole cloth, it's just outrageous. I mean, again, I don't want to make comparisons to very bad situations, but when you hear that, you have to think of Lavrenti Beria. You have to think of that conversation, that famous, infamous conversation between Lavrenti Beria, the head of the KGB and the former Soviet Union, and uh, Joseph Stalin in which Beria says to Stalin, show me the man and I'll find you the crime. Attempted murder of the vice president? That sounds okay. We'll create a theory under which that can be done if it requires manufacturing evidence. Hey, the KGB does that very, very well. It's not true of the United States. I'm not suggesting that tribe would ever do anything like that, but he manufactured a crime. I've been teaching criminal law 60 years. I am probably one of the country's leading expert on the law of attempts. Uh, I wrote my first law review article when I was 21 years old on the law of attempts. I've litigated some of the major attempted murder cases, um, including a case of somebody, a client of mine, who shot a corpse thinking it was alive. And the question is, was it an attempt? It's the leading, one of the leading cases on attempted murder. And let me tell you, there isn't even a plausible basis for indicting President Trump for the attempted murder of Vice President uh, Pence. It's, it, it doesn't pass the giggle test. Um, and, and yet, it's a perfect example, the perfect example of how far people will go to get Trump. In fact, I use it in my book as the primary example of making up crimes. Uh, and it's so dangerous to civil liberties, so dangerous to human rights, so dangerous to rule of law for uh, prosecutors or politicians to say, there's the man, now find the crime. And if you can't find the crime, make up a crime. Let's do it. We did it to Al Capone. We did it to uh, other people uh, who are in the mafia. Um, but, but now we're going to try to apply it to a man running for president of the United States. That's banana republic stuff. That's not what we want the United States to be like. Give me an opportunity to vote against Donald Trump for the third time, and I will take that opportunity, depending on who he runs against. Of course, if he runs against Sanders, um, I have to think very hard about that, that uh, choice. Um, I know I could never vote for Sanders. I can tell you that right now. No matter what, I could not vote for Sanders. I couldn't hold my nose. Um, the man went to England. An American citizen went to England, Sanders, and campaigned actively for the anti-Semitic candidate for prime minister of uh, England. Fortunately, he lost, but Sanders supported him. I could never vote for 
a self-hating Jew like that uh, or anybody like that, no matter who you are, if you voted for um, an anti-Semite, if you supported an anti-Semite, if you campaigned for one, that's it. You've lost, you've lost my vote. Uh, I would say the same thing is true of anybody who supported Ilan Omer, um, the congresswoman uh, who has recently been taken off the Intelligence Committee, a good move, the right move. Uh, she doesn't deserve to be in Congress, but we have no choice. She was elected by her constituents, but she surely doesn't deserve to belong on any uh, congressional committees or to get the imprimatur of the Democratic Party. She ought to be marginalized and, and, and uh, tolerated rather than in any way honored and um, made a central part of the Democratic Party, at least if you want my vote. If you want my vote, if you don't want my vote, if you don't want the vote of other good and decent Americans who won't tolerate this kind of anti-Semitism, that's different. But uh, you're not going to get my vote uh, if you support this kind of, uh, of bigotry. Okay, let's turn to some letters. Um, it's becoming clear that Dershowitz, while good on the issue of free speech, is for the deep state <laughs> and the military-industrial complex. I don't even know what the deep state is. I have no idea what we're talking about. The military-industrial complex. You know, the big firms now are all woke. Uh, they all have diversity, inclusion, and uh, equity uh, uh, programs. They're part of the problem. I'm not a supporter of the military-industrial complex. I think you must have a military-industrial complex if you think I am. As far as the deep state's concerned, it's a cliche. I don't know what that, what that means. Yes, the CIA uh, has its own secrets and uh, uh, has its own attitudes, but the CIA today is, you know, headed by very moderate people. It's not, it's not uh, uh, the bad old days of, uh, of John Dulles or or people like that, or I can't remember what his first name. There were two Dulles brothers, one of them headed the CIA. I'm talking about the one who headed the CIA. But uh, I don't believe there's any such thing as the deep state or the military-industrial complex. Those are those are TV movies, uh, not, 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 not reality. Okay. Let's see what else we have in the mailbox today. Biden hates America. Do you know what you're talking about? You know, Biden is a great patriot. Uh, he's a very nice man. He's a decent man. You can disapprove of him. You can say he hasn't been handling uh, the economy very well. You can say he, maybe he doesn't stand up to Putin. Uh, by the way, my mail has been divided on that. Uh, everybody hates Biden, but half of the people who wrote to me hate Biden because they think he's going to start a war uh, with Russia and China. And the other half hate him because they don't think he's going to start a war with Russia and China. Make up your mind, guys. Is he too tough or too soft? Uh, you can't really have it both ways, but of course you can if you're just writing me letters. This discussion is disingenuous. The invasion was provoked by the United States, by Biden, by the CIA, by Johnson. Now, are we talking about the ghost of Lyndon Johnson? Maybe there's another Johnson. Oh, you know who must have been? Must have been the Johnson who was impeached Andrew Johnson, that's who it must have been, the one who replaced President Lincoln. He's the one who really got us uh, into the Ukraine war, which we started uh, with, with, with Russia. Um, as you know, our support for the Nazi contingent in Ukraine has been the problem all along. Right. Yeah, there's, there's you know, a thousand Nazis 
in the Ukrainian army of which I have been objecting and Americans have been objecting and they're the problem. Come on. Um, and Trump would have assured that there was a settlement by knocking heads together. I think you are parroting propaganda. There are experts outside your dinner party who have different information. I don't really have very many dinner parties these days, but uh, I read a lot and I make up my own mind. Okay. This is an interesting one. You really think women voters will vote for the woman candidate because she's a woman. What kind of pathetic voters would they be? I will vote for the one who has the same hand size as me, size D. Well, you know, in a real, in a, in a utopian world, I would agree with you. Um, I, I wouldn't vote for a candidate just because she was a woman. I was hoping that we could have a woman president of the United States. I was rooting for the first woman to be a Supreme Court justice and the first woman to be, you know, president of Harvard and all of that. It's, it's very nice, but I wouldn't ever vote for a candidate because she was a woman. But there are all there are organizations all over the United States which which do that. There's an organization in Boston headed by a woman named Barbara Lee, a nice person. I like her. But her goal is to just get women elected. And um, she obviously doesn't support every woman candidate. She doesn't support Green, um, uh, the congresswoman. But she doesn't support candidates who are not women. And uh, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of women who out there will vote for somebody who's a woman. There are a lot of people who vote for somebody because they're black. There's a lot of people out there who vote some, somebody because they're Jewish. Uh, I mean, my grandmother would go down the list the ballots and look for the Jewish names and, and, and check them off. And I would scream and yell at her. But, you know, she came from Poland as an immigrant. And uh, from her point of view, you know, she would always say to me, I've told you this before, when I would come back and say, Grandma, the Brooklyn Dodgers have won. And she would say, yeah, but was it good or bad for the Jews? Uh, that was her, her mantra. I mean, she lived through pogroms. She lived, her family was murdered in the Holocaust. So, of course, she had a narrow point of view. Was it good or bad for the Jews? I have friends who say, is it good or bad for blacks? Is it good or bad for gays? Is it good or bad for women? Um, sure. Uh, there's a lot of parochial voting going on in the United States. There's a lot of parochial thinking going on in the United States. So I'm with you. I don't think people should vote based on gender or sex or identity politics in general. I've written a whole book on that subject, the case for colorblind equality in the age of identity politics. And identity politics goes beyond goes beyond race. I, I think I told you that the Bible has two commands for judges. One, don't take bribes. That's obvious. But the Bible puts don't take bribes second to the first one, which is lo takir panim, do not recognize faces. Wear that mask. Wear that blindfold. Don't know whether the person in front of you is a man or a woman. Don't know whether that person in front of you is black or white, Jewish or Gentile. Don't know any of those things. Just render justice based on the facts that are relevant to doing justice. And uh, I wish we had uh, more of that, but we don't. And therefore, we have to take into account the reality. And political parties do take into account that reality, which is why they tried to have balanced tickets, geographically balanced tickets, tickets that are balanced in terms of race and ethnicity and, um, um, and gender. So, uh, you know, tell it to the political uh, leaders, tell it to the pollsters uh, that uh, nobody would uh, take into account a person's uh, identity when casting uh, a vote. Look, I think it's very possible that Al Gore would have been president if not for identity politics voting. I'll tell you the story. As you may know, I was the lawyer um, for 
the citizens, the voters, the Democrat voters of Palm Beach County, um, hundreds of them, we don't know whether it's hundreds or thousands, but at least hundreds of them mistakenly voted for Pat Buchanan. These were largely Jewish voters who voted for the only anti-Semite to run for president in modern times, uh, Pat Buchanan, an overt anti-Semite, a Holocaust denier, terrible, terrible human being. Uh, Jews in general hate him. And they voted for him. Why? Because the butterfly ballot put his, the whole, instead of it being next to the, uh, his name, they put it next to the name of Joe Lieberman, who was vice president. And you got a lot of particularly elderly Jews who saw the name Joe Lieberman, first time a Jewish name has ever appeared on a presidential ballot as a vice presidential candidate. They said, oh, Joey. And they voted for Pat Buchanan. And those hundreds of votes probably made the difference in the election. I very much want to litigate that issue all the way to the Supreme Court. And unfortunately, Al Gore said no. Uh, he didn't think that was a winning issue. I'm a better lawyer than he is. He should have listened to me. He didn't. But um, he lost the election. I'm not saying he would have won the election had we made that challenge. But I am saying, had it not been for identity politics, where people did, in fact, cast a vote for somebody they thought was a co-religionist, the issue might very well have been different. And the, the election may have been decided the same, a different way. Okay, read uh, or listen to Mearsheimer or Kissinger. Uh, top guys in international politics agree with the Russian side this time. No, no, Mearsheimer and Walt, maybe they do. Uh, Kissinger, it's much more complicated. Um, Kissinger was looking for a resolution and he understood the Russian needs as he always did. But then he made it very clear later on that Russia was in, in the wrong. So don't put Kissinger in the same uh, bag as uh, Mearsheimer and, and Walt, who call themselves the so-called realists. I call them the amoral or immoral um, people who think they're realists, but uh, turn out they're not as realistic as they think. So lots of news. And I'm sure between now and the next show on uh, Monday, there'll be lots more news. So please stay tuned, come back and see me and go on to locals. Uh, Alan Dersh, I'm sorry, at Dershow, D-E-R-S-H-O-W dot locals dot com. See you next week.